If you're with me, would you just read along, starting in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. It says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Would you pray with me? Father God, this is your word. You say this is the sword of the Spirit. God, we pray that it would cut through our own hearts, that you would reveal to us its truth, that you would speak to us through it. God, anything that is from you, may it stick with us this week and onward. Anything that's not from you, may it go in one ear and out the other. We pray, God, that you'd be with us, that the Spirit of Christ would be in this room and Help us in all understanding. And may the enemy be kept out. May he not distract us. May we have clear vision and attention as we learn your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, in honor of March Madness, if you didn't know that's going on, probably for the best. Uh, it can really suck your time away, but... In honor of it, and because I'm a huge basketball fan, and my whole family's a basketball family, uh, I thought I'd do a little sermon here about what makes for a great locker room speech. Did you think I'd go there? What makes a great locker room speech? We'll be talking about that today as we look at this important contest between the forces of God and the forces of evil. So... We've got a lot to cover, got the whole armor of God to cover, and so we've got to get moving. So we're just going to get right into it. And the first thing that you have to know before you step foot on the court during March Madness is you've got to know the environment. You've got to know the atmosphere. You've got to know the playing field. You've got to understand what is happening in this field, what kind of court it is if you're going to be effective in this game. Um, in high school, I grew up over in Issaquah, and one of the dominant basketball powers 
for a very long time, uh, I guess still is, I don't keep up with it, Mercer Island High School. Mercer Island High School, they had a really well-known coach that was there for decades. His name was Ed Peppel. And this guy developed a very nice home court advantage. And so when we would go in and play Mercer Island, we had to know about this home court advantage that they had. We had to understand the atmosphere. We had to understand what kind of fans were going to be in the building. Because it changed the game. We were pretty sure that they were paying off the refs. <laughs> Almost sure of it. A lot of money on Mercer Island. <laughs> we knew that the fans wouldn't let us off the hook. They were well read. They'd understand who we are. They'd done their own scouting reports. They knew how to heckle. Best hecklers in the league. So we had to understand that. Scorekeepers, they were probably going to steal a point or two here or there. So you just going to have to be that much better when you went to Mercer Island. You had to understand the atmosphere. You had to understand the playing field. Another example of this uh, would be the Vietnam War. When we went over to Vietnam, we tried to use tactics that had been developed during World War II. But the playing field was different. The battlefield was not the same. This was guerrilla warfare, and we were unprepared because we didn't know the playing field. The Apostle Paul says, you can't see these forces coming. The forces that we're talking about, you're not going to see them rolling down the middle of the field in tanks. They're going to be hidden. You're not going to see them with your eyes because the playing field and the enemy is not made of flesh and blood. But it's a spiritual enemy and it's a spiritual playing field. The word, word that Paul uses here to explain that is he says, these are the powers over the present darkness. These are the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When he says heavenly places, he's talking about the spiritual realm. There's more to this world than just what we can see and touch. There's a spiritual realm. And this is where this enemy takes battle. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't interact and don't interact with the physical world or that the spiritual forces can't interact with the physical world. They can. But if you only take the physical into account, you will be beaten. You will be taken advantage of because you won't see them coming. The other thing I want to point out here with the playing field is this. Look at the term that Paul uses in verse 12. He says, you will rustle. Now why does he use this term rustling? He actually switches from something of a uh, battlefield analogy and he uses this sporting analogy. And the kind of wrestling he's talking about was very popular in the Greco-Roman world and it was hand-to-hand -hand combat. So the thing that we have to understand about the kind of playing field that we're entering is that it is a playing field with close proximity to the enemy. It's hand-to-hand -hand combat. These aren't faraway forces. These aren't abstract ideas. This is rustling. Now, this is the playing field. 
But who is the opponent? Because the second thing that you have to understand when you're prepping for the big game is you got to know who you're playing. you got to know what the opponent is like. Here's what Paul says. He uses three terms to talk about the opponent. He says they are the rulers, they are the authorities, they are the cosmic powers. And there was this idea in Judaism that the gods of the pagan world, the gods of ancient Greece and elsewhere, although they weren't the God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, it wasn't that they had no power. In fact, the understanding was that these pagan gods, Zeus and such, would have animation by the powers that Paul is talking about of the demonic realm. I was speaking to a man uh, when I was in seminary who came from Africa. And he came out of a plurality of religion and he used to pray to the gods of his village and he used to see a shaman and go to the witch doctor and then he became a Christian. And he said even though he had become a Christian, it was very, very hard for him to leave his old religions. Very, very hard for him to just leave behind the witch doctor and the shaman because, he said, there was real power in the things that they were doing. And I believe with all my heart that there is power in other religions and witch doctors because of the spiritual forces of darkness that give power to some of these, what we would call, lesser gods that the one true God, Yahweh. But to pretend like there is no power there is to deny the fact that the opponent is real. We cannot do that. So these rulers, the authorities, these cosmic powers are over this present darkness. And what Paul is saying here is that the devil has a power in this world. This is his home court. This is where he is something of a ruler, something of an authority over this present world. The spiritual places of planet Earth are his headquarters. And so we have to understand that here they have a home court advantage. They know what they're doing. It's not a permanent home court advantage, as we'll see later, because their permanent home, which God has created for them is the lake of fire. And they'll be sent there one day, but for now, in God's sovereign plan, He's allowed them to take residence in this present darkness. Now, as you can tell, I'm talking about a multitude of spiritual, personal beings. But they've got a head coach, and the head coach's name is Satan. Talk about him as the devil. And he's a bit like a college head coach in that uh, there was a time when he recruited a bunch of the very best angels to follow him and rebel against God, the Father, their creator. 
And he's recruited them. And he's brought them in to create his team. And he's something of a player coach as well. It's not just that he recruits and brings them in, but he also participates in the things that he thinks are most important. Now, it's important to remember that the devil is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time. He is not God. He is a fallen angel. But he's a player, coach, and he's the chief strategist. He's put together his team. And they are systematically working to destroy the plans of God. This is what the Bible teaches us. We know that it's a big team with an organized strategy of evil. They're not dysfunctional. They're highly functional, highly organized. They know what their game plan is, and they stick to it. And it doesn't really change over time. We'll see what that game plan is. And we know, the Bible tells us, that probably one-third of the angels followed the devil when he rebelled against God. And now they live here on this earth in the spiritual realm and they're trying to do everything they can to keep God from his purposes. So that's the opponent. The opponent is real and he wants nothing good for you. Okay, so you know the playing field, you know the opponent. Now you've got to know your own team. You have to understand your own team if you want to be successful in the tournament. You've got to know who you're working with. You've got to know what the game plan is. And Paul will tell us you have to put on the whole armor of God. Can't just bring part of the team, can't just bring part of the game plan, can't just bring part of the offense, part of the defense, got to bring the whole thing. Because the opponent is the very best. It's the best opponent that you'll face. So you got to know your team and you got to bring the whole team together. What we'll see is you've got offense and you've got defense. And we'll talk about seven things that you have on your team. We'll go through them one by one. In order that, verse 10 tells us, that we might be strong and we might stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So let's look at these one by one, starting first with the belt of truth. God says, put on the whole armor of God, verse 12, that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. There's two parts to the belt of truth that you have to understand, that you have access to. The first part of the belt of truth is the doctrinal truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are doctrinal truths about who God is, doctrinal truths about what He has promised us, and there is truth about our new identity in Christ. 
The reason we have to fasten this truth around our waist is that the devil's number one means of attack is telling us lies about this truth. So if you look back at the very beginning in what was probably the moment in which the devil himself rebelled against God when he comes up to Eve in the garden and begins to question her, the very thing, first thing he says is, did God really say that you should not eat of that tree? And then he says, do you think God really loves you? Why would he keep that from you? And then he says, that's not the only way to go. Surely you could go your own way and find your own truth and know your own right from wrong. You don't need God. Did he really tell you that he was the only way? Romans 1.16 says this, The devil does not stand in the truth. And Paul is telling us we must stand in the truth. We must fasten it around our waist. John 8.44 says this, The devil is the father of lies. says he is a liar. When he speaks a lie, he speaks in his native language. The devil is always lying, trying to tell you that God's truth is not the only truth or that it's not true at all. So the first thing that we must do is stand firm in the doctrinal truth that God has given us through His Word. The second thing, though, about the belt of truth is this, that we must be truth-telling people. It's not enough just to believe the right things, but we must also be people of truth. We must be known. Our reputation must be speaking truth with honesty and humility. We must put off all deceitfulness, all lying, We need to stop exaggerating. Stop with the hyperbole. We must be very careful not to over-appropriate sarcasm because we are to wear the belt of truth. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. What's your reputation when it comes to the truth? What's your reputation when it comes to truth-telling? When you say yes, do people assume that it's a yes? When you say no, do they assume it's a no? Can people take you at your word? Can you be counted on when you say you'll be there? If we're wearing the belts of truth, we must be truth-telling people. Now the second piece of armor that God says you must wear if you are to be successful against the schemes of the devil is the breastplate of righteousness. Like the belt of truth, I think there's two aspects that we need to remember. The first is this. The breastplate protects what? The heart. So what Paul is getting at here is a matter of the heart. When we hear the good news of Jesus, when we hear of His death and His resurrection, on our behalf, for our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. We must wear that over our heart. 
And we must know and continually remember that we receive, when we have faith in Jesus, a new heart, a clean heart, a guilt-free heart given to us not because of our good deeds, not because we're better than others, but because Christ chose to give it to us, because He died for us in our place. And when we're given this new heart, we are full of the righteousness of Christ. And when we fully appreciate this, when we hold close to it, when we cling to it, this truth, and protect it from the attacks and the lies of the enemy, we can move forward with the plan of God for our lives, remembering that we are no longer our sin, but we are Christ's righteousness. This is so important. If, if you don't understand that you are righteous because you put on Christ and His righteousness, the enemy will attack you He will tell you that you are not worthy of God. That you are not worthy to worship God. To pray to God. To be with God. So you must, if that's you, if you feel that attack, you need to grab the breastplate of righteousness and remember that it's not you who is righteous, but Christ in you. Hold closely to your chest that truth that Jesus Christ gives you His righteousness. As I was preparing this, I just felt like this was something that that we just needed to know. That many of us were being beaten down by this lie. That we're not good enough. That we're a failure. That we keep screwing up. And though we want to seek holiness and righteousness, as we'll see, we must remember that it's not for our goodness that Christ welcomes us into his family, but for his. So the second part of this breastplate of righteousness is one, so the first part is it's Christ's righteousness, not ours. But the second part is that we too are meant to cultivate Christ's likeness. So we are meant to also become more and more righteous in how we live. We are meant to keep, this is how I like to put it, to keep the breastplate shining. It's not our breastplate, it's Christ's, but we can dirty it up. So we want to live a righteous life. We don't want to take it for granted. We want to take good care of the breastplate of righteousness, keep it nice and shiny, that it might shine for the world to see and for the enemy to remember that we're wearing Christ all the time. So if you were in the locker room, this breastplate of righteousness, it might sound a little bit like this during the locker room speech. It sounds something like this. Guys, don't forget our team spirit. Don't don't forget that we've got to have the right ethos when we go out there on the court. We need to play with the heartbeat of Jesus, guys. We need to be unified in Christ and with each other. We have to play the right way because we're Christ's team. So that's what it would sound like right before the big game. The third piece of armor that we must put on 
are the shoes of readiness, Paul says. And this is an offensive strategy. We must always be ready to share the good news of Jesus Christ at any moment because it is the promise of peace with God. Who, who first said this? Holler, holler this out if you know who first said this famous slogan. It's got to be the shoes. Does anybody know that? <laughs> okay. I'm so old. Okay. <laughs> it's got to be the shoes. Okay. Some people think that Spike Lee was the first one to say that in the famous Michael Jordan, Air Jordan commercials back in the day. But it's actually Apostle Paul right here in Ephesians chapter 6. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's got to be the shoes. Okay. Got to get the right shoes. Everybody knows that. Muhammad Ali famously said, this sermon is going to have the most sports analogies ever, so if you're not a sports fan, come back next week. We'll do no sports analogies next week. Muhammad Ali, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. <laughs> you got to have light feet. You got to be ready to move. You got to have the shoes of readiness. Now, if you're dad in the room and you have not purchased a pair of Birkenstocks, you get on your phone right now and buy some because you always have to be ready as a dad. You're carrying your kid in your arm and you're late for something if you're like me and you're like, man, this would be terrible to have to put my kid on the ground or put him in his car seat or whatever before putting my shoes on and I've got my socks on. If you got the Burks, all you do is slip in as you walk out the door. My Birkenstocks are my shoes of readiness. It's how I father well. So this is what he's saying. You have to be ready in all moments, whether you're wearing socks or not, to go out and share the gospel of peace with anybody in whom you have contact with. Now, one of the, one of the ways I like to talk about this, I call it the big flip, okay? The big flip. So often, the enemy is going to send people your way because one of the ways the enemy works is by either tempting or moving in real human beings so that they might come against the forces of God. And so what's going to happen, though, is the enemy is going to send you human beings in whom, uh, whom God loves. And he's going to be sending them your way. And what you want to do is be able to, in that moment, when you're about to go hand-to-hand combat, with these people who are working on behalf of the devil, even though they don't know it, is to be able in a moment to flip the script and invite them to join your team. One of my favorite scenes in all of film is the Battle of Falkirk in the movie Braveheart. And there's this great scene where the English, whom everyone knows represents the devil, are fighting the Scottish, whom everyone knows are the forces of God. I am part Scottish myself from the clan McPhee. And they're facing each other, and the English have pay, uh, they've paid a bunch of money to the Irish to fight alongside them against the Scottish. And so the scene begins, and the Scots, and of course the English send the Irish out first to be slaughtered you know, on their behalf, and they're running at each other. The Scottish are running, uh, swords drawn, running towards the Irish, 
And all of a sudden, they're just steps away, and all of a sudden, they stop. And they hug each other, and they say, ah, brothers, and they flip sides. Like everybody should, they should join the Scottish, and they flip sides. And it's a great scene, because that's actually what can happen here. If you have the shoes of readiness, if you're light on your feet, you can be ready. Even if someone is coming to tear you down because you represent Christ, you can flip them to your side by sharing the gospel of peace with them. Say, guys, we don't have to fight. God has done the fighting for us. Join us. Join us. Jesus Christ has made the way. Oh, that that would happen often when we find ourselves in human-on-human skirmishes. That the gospel of peace would prevail. So this is how it might sound in the locker room. Something like this. Guys and gals, keep your feet right. Keep your feet light. And don't forget, if you ever play basketball, your coach always say this. Move, move your feet. Move your feet. You can't, you can't play offense, you can't play defense without moving your feet. You got to get the, high, the, the feet going, okay? Move your feet. Everybody knows that. We're never going to win if we don't move our feet. Fourth, the shield of faith. Paul says this. In every circumstance, use the shield of faith. In every circumstance. Here's what Paul is saying. In every, every part of the game, you must keep your shield up. You cannot drop your shield for any moment. You must always lean and act and move through faith in every circumstance. So if someone says to you, if someone says to you, well, you only believe that because of your faith. Yeah. Yeah course. (laughs) Praise be to God. Well, you wouldn't believe it if you didn't have faith. Why don't you try thinking about it without faith? Here's what you say to them. No, thank you, because I can't do that. I cannot honestly think about this without my faith, because this is the greatest gift that God has given me. And of of course, my faith informs my reason, but my reason and my faith are not at odds. They work together. Just like your faith works with your reason. So don't drop the shield. Someone says, fight me without that shield. Say, no. That would be dumb. It's like, it's like the hockey player. Or no, it's not really the hockey player. It's the football player that gets in a fight and takes his helmet off. And you're like, what are you doing? And the other guy's got his helmet still on. Just leave it on. So the shield, Paul is probably here referring to, um, you could have a couple types of shield, but he's probably referring to a big rectangular shield that would be the size of a small door. And it usually would protect the whole soldier, could hide behind the shield. So when there was an aerial attack, no arrow could get through and hit him. And this shield would have calfskin on the outside so that when flaming arrows would hit it, it wouldn't set the shield afire. Because although the attacks of the enemy, they can hurt at first, it's really that they could set 
your shield on fire. They could burn down your faith that makes them so dangerous. Yes, there's the initial sting, but there's the lasting effect of the enemy's attack that you begin to, you begin to be worn down by the flame that follows the arrow. And so Paul is saying, keep your shield up. It's your faith that protects you against the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, what are these flaming arrows? Well, I think there's three primary arrows that the enemy will send our way. Uh, The first are, as I said, lies. And the lies can come through false teachers. The lies can also come as direct interjections of doubt and evil thoughts that just happen upon us. And sometimes we don't know why they came. These are what I'd call attacks on the head. They're attacks on truth, attacks on doctrine, attacks on our rationality. And as I said before, we have to have the belt of truth along with, as we'll see, the helmet of salvation, along with, of course, the shield of faith. The second is the arrows of deceit. And these are really attacks on the heart. These are attacks on God's motivations, God's goodness, God's loving nature. And again, when this comes, we both have to have the shield of faith, but also the breastplate of righteousness to remember what God's heart truly is, that He would send His Son to die for us, that He would give us His own righteousness where we have none. A third type of arrow is temptation. This is an attack on our hands. This is an attack to get us to grab something that God doesn't want for us. Not because he's keeping good things from us, but because he knows what's best. And the enemy will use temptation, lust, thoughts of rebellion or disobedience, strong desire to attack our hands and get us to use our hands in ways that we aren't meant to use them. The best way to make sure that you're not attacked through the use of hands is to keep both hands on your shield of faith. Keep both hands on your shield of faith that you are not tempted to act and move through the enemy and the ways he tempts you. Now, let me just say this real quickly. Not every single lie, deceit, or temptation is a direct attack from the devil or his team, okay? We have a fallen nature, and much of that nature experiences these same things, but sometimes it is the enemy stirring them up in us. And so we have to trust God's promises, trust that he wants our greatest good to resist these lies, deceit, and temptation. Stay right behind our shield Don't get greedy. Don't reach out exposing yourself to the arrows. Stay behind the faith that God has given you. Here's how it might sound in a basketball locker room. And you hear this all the time. If you're a basketball player, you know this. Your coach will say, especially when you're on defense, keep your hands up. Always hands up. Keep your hands up ready at any moment. And then he'll tell this, don't reach. Don't reach for something that God doesn't give to you. The enemy wants you to reach 
He wants you to spread yourself out, to expose yourself. Don't reach. Be solid. Stay in position. Trust the team. Trust the game plan. Stay behind the shield. And we'll win this game. The fifth piece of armor is the helmet of salvation. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul has told us in the present tense that we have a new identity in Christ already because of what Jesus has done for us. That by faith, Paul says, you have been saved. You are already saved. This is what Paul is talking about when he says, put on the helmet of salvation. He's saying, the helmet of salvation is the hope, the assurance of victory. That on the cross and through the resurrection, Jesus has already won the victory. For anyone who receives Christ as their Lord and Savior, the victory, the outcome, is not in question. It is already won. We are not waiting to see how this ends. And when we put on the helmet of salvation, we remember that we cannot be killed. That the enemy, though he may bruise us, though he may injure us, he cannot kill us. He cannot reverse the outcome that Christ has already won on the cross. Let me explain this distinction very quickly between a bruise and a head blow. And we see it first in the third chapter of the Bible, right after the temptation of Adam and Eve, and they fall from grace, and God comes and finds them and says, what have you done? Why didn't you trust the truth that I gave you? And then he doles out the consequences of their actions, and he starts by talking to the serpent. And he says this. It's very interesting. He says to the serpent, he says, because, and he's talking here to the devil, because of what you have done, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field. Of, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here's what he's saying to the serpent, who is the devil. He's saying, listen, you will fight your whole life against me, and you will bruise the offspring of the woman. And here, this is the first reference to the gospel. This is speaking of Jesus Christ himself, the offspring of the woman, born of the Virgin Mary. He's saying... You will bruise his heel. That's the cross. But he will strike your head, which is a death blow. And so always in the gospel, playing itself out in human history, in the history of salvation, God in his sovereign plan allows the enemy to bruise our heel, but because we wear the helmet of salvation, he can never crush our head. But his head will be crushed. This is what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians. That no matter what the enemy throws at us, no matter what he throws at you, he can only bruise you. He cannot crush your head because the victory is won for those of us who are in Jesus. 
He has no helmet. You do. This is a great truth. I love the Word of God that it tells us our victory is already won. So here's how it sounds in the locker room. Guys, gals, we didn't even take the trophy out of the trophy case because we know that we cannot lose. We won last year, and we'll win this year. And we'll win every year because victory is not in question. The trophy is ours. So go out there. Don't be timid. And stick your nose right in the middle of this battle because you cannot lose. That is the helmet of salvation. And then Paul says, now pick up the sword of the Spirit, which he says is the Word of God. The sword is both offensive and defensive. On the battlefield, the sword can be used for both. And the sword, he says, is the Word of God. Now the reason why he equates the sword of the Spirit with the Word of God is because this book, the Word of God, is inspired by the Spirit. The Spirit gave us this book that we might use it both, off, both, both offensively and defensively against the enemy. My friends, this is not an ordinary book. These aren't ordinary words. In these words is the power of God. There is power in the spoken word of the Bible. In fact, the Greek word that Paul uses here is actually one that he doesn't use elsewhere. There's two words typically used in Greek uh, that Paul could have used, and the one he chose is the spoken word. And I think he did that on purpose because he wants us to offensively and defensively speak the Word of God out loud. We don't know why it works this way, but it works that the spoken Word of God has power. Offensively, we use this to speak gospel truth. We speak out gospel truth in our world. Defensively, when the enemy lies to us, tries to deceive us, tries to tempt us, we use Scripture as a defense. And the best example we have of this is Luke chapter 4 where we see Jesus who is led into the wilderness by the Spirit and he's tempted three times and every single time the devil tempts him, Jesus quotes Scripture right back at him. So if you want to go and look later at Luke chapter 4, you can see an amazing example of Jesus himself showing us how to speak the Word of God in, the defense, in defense of the enemy's attacks. So here's what this sounds like in the locker room. Guys, gals, remember, okay? Remember when you're out there. There's nothing wrong with a little trash talk. This is designed by God this way, but make sure you're using spirit-inspired trash talk. None of this junk out there. <laughs> Just quote scripture at them. You can try this in real basketball games too. You'll really throw off the opponent. <laughs> you're like, what? You quoting John 3.16? Yes, I am. This is confusing. Okay. So those are the six pieces of armor that Paul talks about here. But he gives us one, uh, one more hint at how we can best win the game. And this is actually more of an overarching uh, activity that he says that you should be doing this at all times and in all ways 
And in fact, it is a way in which you put on the armor of God. And here's how Paul says it. Look with me in verse 18. He says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to keep uh, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication, which is another word for prayer, for all the saints. Here's what Paul is saying. Praying is imperative to your ability to keep standing in this fight. You cannot stay upright if you don't continue to pray. On my wedding day, it was 100 degrees outside in Washington. So people were very confused, <laughs> and they were very hot, and I was very hot, and my wife was very hot, and I remember standing up there just, just sweating more than I've ever sweat, outdoor wedding, and I remember just praying, God help me to keep standing. This would be very embarrassing if I fainted right now. In fact, at one point in the service, my wife, Allie, had to sit down. But I just kept praying, God help me to keep standing. I did not let, by, by the way, I did not let my groomsmen take off their jackets. I said, if I'm wearing my jacket, you're standing right next to me wearing yours. That's how I feel about you guys too, okay? <laughs> Nobody gets to take off their jacket, okay. So Paul is saying prayer is so imperative to, to standing, to the deployment of each piece of armor that he's just mentioned uh, for instance, he's saying this. How will you, you, could, you could think of it this way. How will I in the moment recall the words of God to speak when the enemy attacks? Paul says, by praying. By praying, God will bring the words to mind, the Scripture to mind when the enemy attacks. He's saying, how do I keep my shield of faith up at all times when I feel like it's, it's sinking down? Pray. Pray that you might keep the shield of faith up. He says when, when, when your helmet of the hope of salvation feels like it's, it's no longer there or it's not secure, pray to God that He reminds you of what He's already accomplished in Christ. And then He says pray at all times. Never stop praying. And then He says pray for all the saints, which is other Christians. Don't just pray for yourself, but pray for all Christians that they might have the full armor of God. This is what it sounds like in the locker room. Hey guys, we need to get some chatter out there on the court. We need to be talking all the time out on the court. If you've ever played basketball, really good teams are always chattering. They're always talking. See ball, see man, wolf, wolf. Well, well, that's a real thing in basketball. When somebody's coming up behind you, your teammates need to yell, wolf. Ask anybody that plays basketball. That's a real thing. Where do you think they got that? Right here. Ephesians chapter 6. Wolf. Okay. I'm not making this stuff up. This is legit stuff, okay? Now, here are, what do we got? Okay. Here are the keys to victory. These are really, really good. So stick with me. Wake up. Locker room talks about to go. Okay, here we go. Keys to victory. Don't psych yourself out. The enemy is the best opponent that you will ever face, but you can beat him. Don't psych yourself out. It is not an unwinnable fight. You can win this fight. Second key to victory. 
Don't underestimate your opponent. The greatest lie the devil ever told was that he didn't exist. Do not believe the lie that the devil is not working. He loves it when we don't talk about him. He's pissed today. How do I know that? My printer didn't work. He does not want us to talk about him because he loves us to underestimate him. Third key to victory. You have to define the win. And the win is this. Paul says it three or four times. Stand. Why is that the win? Stand. He's saying don't quit. Stay the course. Don't retreat. Greatest Second, well, even better than the Falkirk scene in Braveheart is the hold scene, where these guys are with their shields and, they're, and Braveheart just keeps saying, hold, hold, hold. Look it up. Okay. Why is this the win? Why is standing the win? Because God's already winning. God's plan is already perfect. The victory is already ours. We need to remember this in Seattle, my friends. It might feel like we're not winning or that the forces are coming. No, it's working. The plan of God is secure. We do not need to change our doctrine. We do not need to change our hope just because our culture seems to be fighting against it. So so in some ways, this speech I've been talking about, it's more like a halftime speech because we already have a huge lead. The victory is already secure. And he's just saying, stand firm. Don't panic. Keep with the plan. Stay the course. Key number four. These are great keys. This is a great locker room speech. You need the whole armor. Paul says you need the whole armor. You can't bring your B game. You need to bring your A game. You need to put on your shoes. You need to put on your socks. You need to wear your shorts. In fact, I used to have this recurring dream. Not as much anymore that I'm not playing as much basketball, but I used to have a recurring dream that I would show up to the gym without my shoes. And I'd be like, where are my shoes? And sometimes it'd be my jersey I forgot. I had this dream hundreds of times. I don't know why. I always remembered my shoes in my jersey. Don't forget your shoes. Don't forget your jersey. You need all of it. This is a great opponent. You need your offense and your defense. Next few keys here. Ready? Team sport. It's the name on the front of the jersey that matters the most. The name on the front of the jersey matters the most. It makes the most difference. The devil's tactics are always to isolate you. This is always the way he works. When you read the Bible, the way that he works is to isolate. He isolates Adam and Eve from one another. Where the heck is Adam? When the devil is talking to Eve, Adam, show up, bro. This is your woman. Don't leave each other alone. Jesus is in the wilderness alone, and the devil attacks. Judas separated from the eleven when the devil tempts him away from Christ. So don't isolate yourself. Yes, Jesus goes away to pray, but then he always comes right back. A community. So solitude can be important if temporary. We call these retreats, not absent wanderings. God wants us never to be detached from the community of Christ because that is where the devil attacks. This is a huge issue in our culture of millennials is that we think 
that we must isolate ourselves to find ourselves, God says, no, that is a terrible idea because that is when the enemy likes to attack. Key number six, the name on the back of the jersey matters too. It's not as important as that on the front, but it matters because the te- for the team to win, each player has to win his or her individual battles. There is no such thing as an unimportant battle. No matter how seemingly insignificant you think it might be that you do your part to fight against the enemy, it's not. Resisting the temptation of lust, for instance, is important for everyone, whether you're the Pope or you're just some factory worker in Iowa. Every battle matters. Every Christian is in the game. There's no such thing as a Christian who just sits the bench his whole life. We don't all play the same part. We don't all get the same minutes. But we are all playing in this cosmic game. When every husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church, the gospel is winning. When every boss treats his employees with brotherly respect and dignity, the gospel is winning. One thing you'll always hear during March Madness or other sporting events is that even though there's a lot of focus on the last play of the game, Anybody that's ever played sports will say this, and you'll hear people as you're watching March Madness say this, it's every play in between that's just as important as the last. So don't take any plays off. Every day, every moment, constantly in prayer, putting on the whole armor of God. And here's the great thing. You never know in March Madness who's going to be the hero of the game. It might be somebody you've never heard of. In fact, we named our kid Grayson after the hero of the championship game in 2015. I'd never heard about him before. He was a freshman. He came off the bench, and he won the game for his team. Nobody expected it, and so I named my son after him. Now he has a tripping problem, but that's okay. (laughs) Okay, key number seven, games are usually won and lost before the lights ever flip on. My dad used to always say this to me. Proper preparation prevents piss-poor performance, son. What you do before the devil attacks is just as important as what you do in that moment because your actions in that moment will always flow out of your preparation. So what are you doing to prepare? Do you feel like you're losing a lot of games? Maybe you need to look at your practice habits, your rhythms, of prepping for the game. Finally, let me say this. In basketball, like in the spiritual realm, the team with the best player always wins. It's pretty simple. The best thing that any good coach can do in any locker room speech in the spiritual realm is to get to say this, hey, don't stress. We've got Jesus. Look at it again. In verse 10, it says this. In the strength of his might, we can win the battle. It is only by the power of Jesus, because he's the best player. The devil doesn't even compare to him. 
it's like college basketball in this, that usually championships are won through recruiting. It's the same thing here. If you want to win, you recruit Jesus to be on your team. And you give him the ball as often as possible. And when the devil attacks, you invoke, you recruit the power of Jesus. And the best way to do that is by speaking his name out loud. In the power of Jesus, stay away from me, devil. Get behind me, Satan, in the name of Jesus, because it's the name of Jesus that makes all the difference. So are we ready? Are we ready for the, for the greatest challenge of our life? I hope so. I hope as a church we're ready for this. I hope that we are wanting to recruit Jesus to be a part of our team because we are in a fight. If you don't know it or you don't feel it, it's because you're losing. He wants you to think that this is normal, but it's not. That feeling that you have, that lack of love for yourself, that's not from the Lord. That's from the enemy. That feeling of, I'm not good enough. That's not from the Lord. It's from the enemy. That lack of motivation to share the gospel, that's not from the Lord. That's from the enemy. We must realize the fight that we're in. And we must know that it's already won. Would you pray with me?